story popped up in the Washington Post this week that Jess picked up on because it's in Cedar Falls, Iowa, where she happens to have spent most or all of her high school years before we met, so we had to read it, of course. I'm going to put it today, or try to, in the form of a creation story, because that is our theme today. And the beginning of the story goes like this. In the beginning, there was Pride Month in June. And the people of Cedar Falls said, let there be an official proclamation so that we have it officially celebrated in our community this year for the first time. And they took it to the city council. And the city council said, this is a good gift. But Pharaoh, the mayor of Cedar Falls, Rob Green, his heart was hardened. And he said, I cannot, cannot sign this proclamation, for it goes against everything I believe. There are a lot of creation stories that start in chaos. In the beginning, there was chaos and a great battle between the powers we can't comprehend and the gods that had been created from those powers. And until the battle ended, when Marduk slew Tiamat and cleft the body in two, and of the two halves turned them into the earth and the heavens. In the beginning, there was chaos and a great war between the titans and the gods they'd given birth to, and the earth was created out of the fallout of all of those wars and murders and everything. In the beginning, there was just a giant ice plain and the giants who lived upon it, and the earth was created when Odin and his brothers slew the great ice giant Ysir. A lot of chaos, a lot of violence in the work of creation in some people's stories. Even the Big Bang, if you think about it, that's a giant explosion at the beginning of everything, so that's got a pretty, pretty Big Bang to it. I had slides to go along with this. And then, in the beginning, there was a void. There was nothing. Not even chaos. There was a void. And God said, let there be light. It's an interesting change of pace. This is not the only creation story in the history of the world that comes out of speaking something into existence. But it's a pretty prime example in the face of all these other Western culture stories. Let there be light. The Greek, the Greek, the Hebrew verb in the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis is yehi. And the best way we can translate it into English and have been since the 16th century is let there be. But the verbs in Hebrew are a little more, more nuanced than that. 
we tend to think of that as being a command. I command it to be so. I command there to be light. In the Latin, it was translated into fiat lux, lux, which has a very, very definitive, this I declare to be now. And it's also the thing my dad used to say when I was a teenager and he flipped the lights on at six in the morning to try to get out the door to school, just to give you a sense of how I grew up. But the tenses in Hebrew are much more nuanced, and the tense of the verb yehi in this case is actually much more of a softer command, almost a request instead, a plea. In some ways, it could rightly be more translated as just, there is light. Or, I wish there was light. I wish this were so and the water was so, and the land was so. I wish these things. The first creation myth at the beginning of Genesis is written in the form of poetry. It was most likely a hymn. And so in that regard, you can imagine perhaps Yahweh singing creation into being in this story. Yahweh tells a story of creation into the void, and the story becomes true. And if it's true that we carry a spark of the divine within us, it might show up strongly in the fact that, as the writer Jonathan Gottschall has written, we are storytelling animals. It is what we are programmed to do. We tell stories. We're just built to do that. Our brains are shaped to put everything into a narrative form to make sense out of the world. And the biggest story we are telling ourselves into the world, the one that we are always retelling and revising and retelling over and over again, is the narrative of our own lives in relationship to everything around us, about the person we are becoming, not just in and of ourselves, but in relationship to everything around us. It's the story of an ongoing creation, the person we are constantly becoming. It is how we make sense of the world around us. And I'm not just throwing out a metaphor here this morning. Psychologists have been doing all sorts of research into humans' tendency to form everything in the frame of a narrative. Psychologist, psychologist Jonathan Adler, at the end of his studies, has come to the conclusion that the default mode of human cognition is a narrative mode. Life is incredibly complex, he says. There are lots of things going on in our environment and in our lives at all times. And in order to hold on to our experience, we need to make meaning out of it. And the way we do that is by structuring our lives into stories. Dan McAdams and Erica Manzak have done plenty of research into this narrative human tendency as well. And they write that life stories do not simply reflect our personality, they are our personality. 
They are important parts of personality, along with other parts like our goals and our values, our inherent traits. The way a person integrates all of those facts and events internally is in a narrative form of identity. A life story doesn't just say what happened, it says why it was important and what it means for the person who is, for who they'll become, and for what happens next. We make sense of the world, they continue to say, through the act of autobiographical reasoning. That's a new one on me this week, I love that idea. We are using our reason to piece our story together, to put it into some kind of framework. It's not a simple undertaking. People contain multitudes, and they have different narratives depending on the different spheres of their lives. There might be an overarching story you tell about yourself as a human being, but there's the story you might tell about how you got to do the job you got today, or your time in school, or the story of your family life, or the story of your children, or the story of your hobbies. And sometimes they interconnect with one another, and sometimes they might even contradict one another. But we are constantly mapping out those narrative arcs for ourselves, identifying lessons learned or insights gained in life experiences marking development or growth through sequences of scenes and showing how specific life episodes illustrate enduring truths about life, about ourselves. We are, to an extent, self-creators. Yes, someone gave birth to us and someone nurtured us, but at the same time, we are constantly in the process of discovering ourselves and defining ourselves. We are seeking an identity almost all our lives, finding the depths of our true selves and then uncovering those pieces and integrating them into the story. And as such, as self-creators, we are co-creators in the ongoing story of the world around us because our presence matters and the choices we make matter and the choices we make are sometimes very influenced by the stories we are telling about ourselves. We are shaping ourselves and the world around us. And the way we tell our story shapes how other people tell their stories. And the way other people tell us their stories shape the way we again restructure and revise our own narratives. We don't do it in a vacuum, we are co-creators. The challenge in this work is to not get insular in the way we are editing and revising and reviewing our stories, to not let it be just within the walls of our own self. The challenge is to stay engaged with the world around us that we are participating in creation with as we develop this creation story of our own selves staying engaged to be informed by what other stories have to tell us, and not just be informed, 
but perhaps even affected and changed. And the people of Cedar Falls came to Pharaoh and the rest of the council and said, this ain't a good decision, dude. And for 90 minutes, they proceeded to tell him their stories, that they wanted to feel safe in their community, that he wanted to feel pride in who they were. And bit by bit, little by little, Pharaoh's heart was softened. I'm not comfortable saying I'm not comfortable because saying the proclamation because of my, my beliefs, which are not going to change. I appreciate what's being said, that it's not that you're looking for me to uh, agree. The comment said, uh, it's to support the community, not, not to believe necessarily in all the, the statements. And I think that's something I didn't really appreciate before or didn't really take to heart. It's very important to realize that there are a lot of people who believe like I do. And that's our social challenge. How do, how do we reconcile the two? How do we find uh, the common ground? How do we help to feel people, uh, help people feel safe? Because I certainly want people to feel safe in the community. <laughs> I know there's laughter. Like you, I hope that you take my genuineness. I'm not a hateful person. I would say, the, and there's laughter again, keep in mind that there are hundreds there's 40,000 people in this town. There are at least hundreds of people who don't understand. And I'm one of those. But just from the, the comments tonight and for trying to understand and understand the position you're in, appreciating that I don't have to change my beliefs in order to support those around me. We don't have to agree to support. We don't have to agree to care. We don't have to agree in order to love each other and to try to understand each other. So with that, I will sign the proclamation. We need not think alike to love alike. How about that? Now, was that a, a major 180 dramatic turn for Mayor Green? No. He admits himself he's struggling with things and has a lot of work to do. And that's usually how a change like that is going to go, because we don't live in the movies. There are no dramatic turnarounds. Rarely are they, and rarely do they stick right away. It's a two-step forward, one step forward, two steps back sort of a situation. The revisions in Mayor Green's story came about because of a, a pressure point, because he could not avoid what was happening right in front of him. And a lot of times, the same is true for us. We sit down with our life stories and start the revisions because we've come to some kind of a crisis point in our lives, whether it be monumental or just a, a, a slight shift in how we understand ourselves or the world. And we find maybe ourselves out of sync with our values or the vision we have for the world is the way it should be. And we start to feel it's time to write a new chapter. Why did I choose that word? <laughs> 
there is a danger in starting to revise or write a new chapter based on these points of crisis, based on these points of pressure. And that is, we might get a little misdirected in our narrative. We might follow the wrong plot line. We might start writing more to assuage our own egos rather than to delve into what is the essence of ourselves, the depth and truth of ourselves that we're trying to get at to get back in sync with the world around us. Am I narrating on a surface level or am I diving into the depths? Am I writing from ego or am I writing from essence? Human beings being human, we do have a tendency to suffer from what one psychologist calls illusory superiority, meaning we tend to overestimate the God bless America. We tend to overestimate our own level of skill in relation to other things. And we substitute that for the autobiographical reasoning we should be engaging in. And that's why, whenever I'm writing at least, I use beta readers, or what I like to call the B team. The people who get to read the first draft before I share anything publicly with anyone, at least in the writing realm. I love my B team, they make things better. Have a buddy system when you are working on your narrative, on your creation story, somebody to keep you in check, pull you back from that illusory superiority, to pull you back from the surface and the ego that you might be writing towards. Now, the mayor of Cedar Falls, had the beta reading process kind of forced on him in this story because people came to him and told him what was what and exactly what was wrong in the story he was trying to tell in the community. He had that check, that come to Jesus moment, that hey, we have some recommended revisions moment, forced on him. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter if that moment of accountability in our storytelling comes to us by force, or we arrive at it naturally. The, the question is, how do we respond to the feedback? What do we have to say to our editors when they give us some notes? Hopefully, hopefully, we're responding much as the mayor did and taking the critique to heart a little bit, participating in creation in their own story, being moved by what's around them to start making some shifts. And like I said, it wasn't a 180 turnaround, it wasn't a dramatic twist at the end of a movie, it didn't happen overnight, and I'm sure he maybe had second thoughts after he did it as he's struggling. But that's the thing about storytelling. Revisions are a slog. I hate rewriting. My least favorite thing to do. And yet they're necessary to get the story in sync with the world around us.
I'm willing to bet that some of you in this room after 2016 started to get a, a, a sense within you that I started developing, was, which was just a kind of a, a low-grade, chronic anger at the world, which by 2020 had only just built up more and more. And I found myself around that time realizing that I was, I was living in that space. I was living in the anger. I was letting it stew. I was letting it develop. And I was starting to build some property in there. And I realized that that was completely out of sync with the person I want to be, with the story I want to tell about myself and how I relate to the world. And so one day, I just said it out loud. I don't want to be angry anymore. And boom, never felt any anger again. No, no. <laughs> I did not change overnight. Anger is still there. Sometimes I still follow the spiral down. Antidepressants help me get some distance from that, which is lovely. I did not change overnight. And I understood, because I preach it all the time here, you are allowed to feel what you feel. And that is a natural emotion. So the question is still, maybe I should be using that anger in a constructive way rather than let it deconstruct me. I had to write a revision. Use anger constructively. Do not wallow in it. And bang, everything changed. No. No, it is still a struggle every day, but it's the story I tell myself. And so it is the way I start to follow my actions in the world. The story we are telling about ourselves leads us to behaving in the world in the way we wish to be, in the way we wish to see the world around us. We have spent a lot of time over the last many years feeling, I'm sure, absolutely powerless in the face of forces that we cannot really have an effect on, that seem insurmountable, too big for one person to deal with. And it's enough to really just kind of get you to disengage from life often. But good news is we are co-creators in the world around us and its ongoing story of creation. We tell a story together about our vision for the world and how it can be. We are storytelling animals. We are creating out of the chaos. All we need to do is pay a little more attention to the craft of our storytelling, to the means in which we tell the story, in the means of the way the narrative arc works, taking in everything around us and letting ourselves be changed from time to time. And that story we tell, that we retell, and revise again and again. 
leads us to act in our own communities in a way that counters that, series, that feeling of powerlessness and might actually lead us to change within the spheres where we have some actual power. In the beginning, there was nothing, and someone said, let there be you. And then the story continued. And you are still telling it today, co-creating with all of us. What will we tell into being?